0: This
1: is hell. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. We like to think that certain aspects of our lives are outside of politics, free from politics, despite it being very arguable that, in fact, everything is political. Yet there are things that appear to be completely wrapped up in politics that, for whatever reason, their practitioners insist politics is completely absent from those crafts. The the police, for example. We like to think they are completely objective enforcers of the law, and they like to position themselves that way, passionless as they serve and protect the safety and security of the public. However, as we recently learned here during our local election for mayor in Chicago, the police are a very, very political force. Their union leadership threatening that a large contingent would resign if their supported candidate for mayor was not elected, and that blood would run in the streets. Well, a similar belief is apparently embraced with the national security state and foreign policy making. Practitioners like to believe theirs is a completely practical, rational art, untouched by politics. That not is until something goes wrong something goes bad and when it does it's definitely the fault of politicians a bout of politics which undermines practical and rational foreign policy which is nothing but the material interests of the people of the united states at heart when u.s military blunders as our guest calls them as our guest today calls them when those happen anywhere you can bet the real people who should be held accountable and responsible for the misdeeds Aren't the national security or foreign policymakers themselves, but politicians and the public and the influence of popular media that allowed politics to screw up what would otherwise have been absolutely perfect policymaking. In a few minutes, we will consider how a longtime National Security Administration veteran believes policy is made and what that might mean for our and the nation's understanding of national security and foreign policy when we speak with writer and editor Simon Waxman, who posted the Baffler article, Worst Laid Plans, Foreign Policy is Politics. Simon works across areas of the humanities, sciences, and arts. He is a senior editor with the Harvard University Press and was previously managing editor at Boston Review, the, poly, the political and literary magazine. Simon has written for the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, L.A. Review of Books, The New Republic, Al Jazeera America, Christian Science Monitor, Los Angeles Review of Books, uh, I just said that, McSweeney's, Jacobin, Democracy Journal, and others. Find out more about Simon at simonwaxman.com. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing is, for the very, very first time, Dan Kugler. Dan, thank you very much for becoming the newest addition to our crew. Thank you very much for being here.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Full disclosure, while we never do any kind of pre-interview and refuse to send questions to guests when they request that we do so, we often actually... Cancel interviews with guests when they send Me questions that I'm supposed to ask them I sent the following question to Dan yesterday Because as today is Dan's first show I thought we should take this opportunity To get to know a little bit about Dan at least When it comes to the show so Dan I met you Through a friend of a friend years and Years ago and I think it was uh, Has it been maybe five years Since the last time I saw you
2: that uh, sounds right. Uh, uh, glogging, so yeah, who I think knows? so. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. A holiday party at my house. Uh, so uh, maybe I saw you a an anniversary and listener appreciation party. Yeah,
2: probably. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But
1: so, Dan, how do you remember how you first learned about this is hell? If you do, uh, I, how the hell did you find out about it?
2: I think I was starting college at Loyola University, and I was. Uh, flipping along the left end of the dial, as they used to call it. Yes. And, and um, I started listening to you in the morning. So. On Saturday mornings. Yeah, back in the old days of uh, twist top knowledge and national beer. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. All the old gimmicks that we used to have. That's right. We should probably return <laughs> to some of those. So uh, uh, were you in the dorms at the time?
2: Yeah. I Yeah, I would have been then.
1: Were you listening to Loyola Station, too, L-U-W? Yeah,
2: I was. I started working with them on a folk music show, a folk and blues show, and uh, I g- got into radio through that, and I actually um, did some training with you uh, 20 years ago at the old Northwest. Station. I thought you station. did. I thought yeah, you were up there yeah. at one point. Yeah, <laughs> with uh, Spencer Thunderball Thayer and Theron Hummison. Yeah, and, that, must, and, yeah that has to be yeah.
1: 13 years ago yes. now. Yeah, 14 years. Wow, yeah. that, that was a long time ago. I do remember you come, yeah. came up and trained one time. Yeah. That's right, because we were in another transition. <laughs> and here you are again, like 15 years later. Right. That's crazy.
2: Got to train all over because we have a completely different system. Here.
1: Completely yeah. different system. So, yeah. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience?
2: This week's question from hell is. What's a disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding?
1: The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from Al wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. The This Is Hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, the face mask, the coffee mug, the trucker's cap, the winner. Uh, Beanie or toque if you prefer As well as the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century Flash Drive featuring dozens of Interviews from the 2000s you can check out all of our Stuff right now by going to Thisishell.com and Clicking on support you can Leave your answer to this week's question from hell At our Facebook page facebook.com slash Thisishellradio or you can direct message it to us Via twitter at thisishellradio Or you can email chuck at Thisishell.com as always we will Be announcing this week's winner at the end of this Week's show Following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth, Dan, what is Jeff talking about during this week's moment of truth?
2: Jeff talks up the half-ass ethos. (laughs) The half-assed ethos? That sounds enjoyable and
1: confusing. We got an email at at chuckatthisishell.com from Natty C. Natty C writes, my name is Natty. I'm a cultural and digital organizer at the intersection of arts and economic justice. I'm working to get eyes, hearts, and minds engaged with a new curriculum called Economics for Emancipation, E4E. I'm also a Patreon supporter of This Is Hell. Well, thank you very much, Natty. Uh, if you want to support if you want to support us on Patreon, all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash this is hell. Uh, Natty C writes, I've been listening to you for a while, at least six years And I think it would be incredible to have BIPOC, that's black, indigenous, and people of color, radical economists and grassroots community organizers who created this curriculum to speak to your audience, to not only study together using these incredible and free resources, but to study into action, E4E, again, that's economics for emancipation, is a no cost seven minute introductory online course informed by decades of dialogue with grassroots social justice and union organizers and heterodox radical economists out of the University of Massachusetts Amherst. It creates spaces for learning about alternatives to capitalism and applying the lessons to craft organizing strategies and community projects, especially for folks who lack access to higher education or who are long out of school and want to refresh your course. The online portal portal offers free access to the online curriculum materials, which includes more than 25 self-guided video lessons, an interactive workbook, and a facilitator guide for the workshops. Please let me know if you are interested and we can talk more, thinking the conversation can range from... Legacy of heterodox economics in the U.S. and globe. What is it? Why is it so marginal? Why is the economics field so dominated by the neoclassicals? Why there's so few progressive economics programs in the United States and across the globe? The importance of economics, popular education to organizers and working class people. We can dig into the curriculum, talk about lack of people of color in the economics field and beyond the binary of capitalism and socialism to prefiguring the economy we deserve now and examples where it's happening in the United States. Thank you for your consideration. More information is below in this email. Best Natty. So, if you are interested in the Economics for Emancipation curriculum, go to Economics, then the number four, emancipation.org or you can sim- simply email me at chuck at and I'll forward Natty C's uh, email with additional details and an attachment uh, and an attachment which I will forward to you as well to find out more about the no cost seven module in- introductory online course economics for emancipation again visit economics the number four Emancipation. Dot org, or email me at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com and I'll forward Natty's email to you. You can email us at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com like Natty did, and if you do, we will likely share your thoughts on air with the listening audience. If you suggest a guest and we have that guest on the show, we will thank you personally during that interview. That's Chuck at ChuckAtThisIsHell.com coming up political, rational, practical, foreign, and national security policy, it turns out, is very political, irrational, and impractical. We will have this week in Rotten History. Dan will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell and will tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Look around. This is hell. And if you do look closer, more deeply at foreign, U.S. foreign and national security policy, I mean, really take a deep, long look, it often seems inconsistent to not make any sense at all. It appears inconsistent when it comes to being an agenda for spreading democracy, liberty, and freedom. When we shift our focus to the bottom line, the policy policies often seem contradictory, opposing those that could be actually beneficial to the U.S. economy, while supporting those who may not be to the same extent. All of this can lead one to wonder, what is U.S. foreign and national security policy? What is it really all about? Here to hopefully help us have a better understanding of what pol- policymakers are supporting and what their policies are causing and what they're opposing and what they're supporting. Writer and editor Simon Waxman posted the Baffler article, Worst Laid Plans, Foreign Policy is Politics. Welcome to This is Hell, Simon.
0: Yes, thanks so much for having me. Uh, I'm I'm a big fan of the program.
1: Oh, wow. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. That's always shocking to me to find out that people actually (laughs) listen to the show. I really appreciate it.
0: Every now and then, yeah.
1: Thank you very much, man. So you write that in November 2019, during the first impeachment hearings of uh, Donald Trump, uh, Right-thinking Americans Were aghast at the testimony Of Fiona Hill From her senior position on the Russia desk At the National Security Council Hill had witnessed Trump's unfolding plot To hoodwink his way to re-election A scheme in which U.S. diplomatic personnel Taking direction from campaign operative Rudy Giuliani Would extract from the government of Ukraine A public announcement That it was investigating Joe Biden The sought-for inquiry of Trump's political opponent Was, Hill emphasized size the House Intelligence Committee a domestic political errand strategically distinct from national security policy Stephen Simon was probably unfazed in his book grand delusion in, uh, grand delusion the rise and fall of American ambition in the Middle East Simon exhibits a carnival's worth of venal politicians careers uh, bureaucrats and globe-trotting Chislers who have instrumentalized the U.S. national security apparatus to their own ends. Where Hill delivered the news with sober intensity, Simon relishes exposing scoundrels and opportunists. Now, the reason that you focus on this book Again, Grand Delusion, The Rise and Fall Of American Ambition in the Middle East Is because Simon served on the National Security Council This again is uh, Stephen Simon uh, Served on the National Security Council staff As Senior Director for Middle Eastern and North African Affairs from 2011 To 2012 during the Obama Administration and worked on the NSC staff From 94 to 99 on Counterterrorism in the Middle East A security policy during the Clinton Administration These assignments followed a 15 year Career in the U.S. State Department, which would cover the George H.W. Bush and Reagan administration. So this is a long-time foreign policy, national security, national security policymaker. How consistent are these venal politicians, careers po- bureaucrats, and globe-trotting chislers? Are U.S. failures and poor policies related to the Middle East a partisan or bipartisan project? How much does this depend upon who's in the White House and who's controlling Congress?
0: Well. I think you know my perspective on it is that it is a transpartisan and trans-ideological kind of phenomenon um we and and that is because you know what's consistent in national security policy is that it is a domestic political errand for the most part that the point is to achieve domestic political goals and of course to achieve certain financial goals for players in the system but as far as politicians are concerned I don't think that we should really be looking for a sort of non-ideological or non-partisan uh national security strategic outcome we should be looking to understand what sort of political coalitions people are trying to build um And to really take a careful look at how national security policy is oriented toward um, ideologies that people feel strongly committed to, not so much material outcomes. That I think is, is kind of the gist of what I'm arguing here. And the reason that this book is interesting to think about in those terms is because while it doesn't You know it doesn't explicitly say any of this it's in in fact it's 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 entirely oriented in the other direction constantly arguing for um strategy and how strategy has gone missing in u.s foreign policy in the middle east and i think that we should try to understand how the decisions that u.s policymakers have made have been rational in the sense of promoting their political agendas if not really a security or economic agenda.
1: You write that the effect of Stephen Simon's jumble of arguments is to reinforce the cult of strategy that matured during the Cold War. What do you mean by the cult of strategy? How is strategy viewed in from within this cult of strategy?
0: Well, <clears throat> so I think that if we look at the sort of structures of foreign policy and national security thought that Really emerged and and were were sort of you know heavily developed during the Cold War. What we see is a, a sort of a system of calculation, right? I mean, for example, game theory was hugely important in the development of ideas of um, you know protection from mutually assured destruction, and the whole thinking here is that there is a strategically right choice to achieve security but there isn't a whole lot of thought going into you know what what security really means right security is not just material protection from bodily harm security is sort of a state of mind and a feeling of um you know a feeling of safety but it's something that we project in so many directions in our lives and then also with respect to communities and nation-states and in addition to that you know specifically with respect to the Cold War it seems so obvious that there was this bipolar condition of enemies and conflict but at the same time there was a huge amount of ideological and emotional investment in that conflict having very little to do with anyone's you know security from bodily harm and I think that we can we can certainly think in terms of strategic security uh preventing ourselves from being wiped off the map in the context of nuclear war but it's important to also remember that all of that was built on a pre-existing substrate of you know animosity and contempt and distrust, having of course a great deal to do with anti-communism in the United States, um, and that you know those that distrust of leftists had developed over the course of many many decades before there was ever a Cold War, and I think that we can get a lot out of recognizing how strategy became a way of of laundering that pre-existing animosity and that pre-existing distrust and the ideological and emotional investments underlying it Um, and i think that once we start to recognize that we can also start to think about all these other foreign policy conditions that you know we we just reflexively understand to be security related but again you know what exactly do we mean by security and what are the ideological and sentimental sort of bases underlying these conflicts that seem to be so obviously related to you know military concerns
1: so is us foreign policy strategy in uh, the legacy of US foreign policy strategy from the Cold War, one that is anti-left is it uh, is US foreign policy strategy not as much concerned with right-wing uprisings as it is concerned about left-wing uh, uprisings seeing them as a greater challenge to uh, the United States existentially than a far right uh, program would be.
0: You know, I'm not I'm not really sure about that. I think that <clears throat> for the most part foreign policy as it operates in the United States. And, and I think in, in really all powerful countries, countries that aren't really at great security risk, um, isn't, isn't really governed by a particular, uh, a particular sort of, uh, overarching ideological preference, but by the sort of contingent needs of politicians uh, who they look out into the world for opportunities to build their political coalitions, build their their brand, create a an identity that itself becomes a site of sort of sentimental attachment for voters. So, you know, if you look at, for example, the uh the case of of the American voluntary war in Iraq that was fomented by the George W Bush administration you know that there wasn't a an ideological goal there but I think what there was was an effort on behalf of a you know a listless administration that had been put in the White House by the supreme court uh, to create conditions for its own legitimacy by uh you know creating a sort of rally around the leader effect by you know i think you know those of us who recall the 2004 election there was a lot of talk of how you can't change horses midstream right the white house was arguing well we're in this war so you have to vote us back in And that is what happened, right? It was very successful from the standpoint of building a political coalition. Um, And I think that we honestly see something very similar going on in Russia and Ukraine right now, where you have uh, a regime in Russia that it, who's, who's the, you know,
1: Are you still there, Simon?
0: that the <clears throat> that Russia has been mistreated, and that it is, you know, that it is in a in a perpetual conflict with this thing called the West, and the so the invasion of Ukraine is sort of an adjunct to and a way of amplifying those grievances in order to secure the loyalty of the people to the regime so it's it's very similar you know in both of these cases of of really playing up the nationalist angle and to some extent there can be genuine feelings behind that right i think that the feelings of the people are are typically genuine um and to some extent those of you know the operatives of the regime um but i think you know, it's not necessarily a left or right question in that case. It has much more to do with regime survival.
1: So is foreign policy then more guided not by the needs of the people overseas, whether that's the people in Ukraine and from the Russian point of view, or the people in Iraq from the United States uh, point of view? Is it not, is it guided more, By the needs of the people overseas, or is it more guided by the domestic needs of the political leadership at that time? Is going to war in Iraq for the United States or going to war in Ukraine for the Russians, is that about just trying to become more politically popular at home than it is for any of the needs of the people in Iraq or the people in Ukraine?
0: Well, I mean, I think absolutely right. You know, there's uh, the in these, okay, so it's important to realize that there are, of course, different circumstances and that there are circumstances where you can make a potentially stronger humanitarian argument for intervention. I think that typically we should be extremely wary of such arguments, but there are better and worse forms of those arguments. You know, when it comes to... uh you know U- Ukraine Russia's the Putin's uh claims of you know denazifying Ukraine are obviously ridiculous um and you know in the case of the war in Iraq i don't think that it it is at all credible to suggest that you know that was a conflict whose <clears throat> you know, ultimate intentions were to be beneficial to the people of Iraq. The intention was to be beneficial to George Bush and Dick Cheney. um, And, you know, of course, the uh, the other sort of players in the national security and military industrial complexes that are always prepared to uh, generate returns from those sorts of efforts. no i don't think that anyone could really credit the idea that that was to iraq's benefit i do think that there were you know there were people involved in the administration and Mm -hmm. in academia and in journalism who pushed this idea that it was essential to democratize iraq in order to you know domesticate it uh, so that it would no longer be a threat to anyone um and because there was this notion that you know democracies never go to war, which is I think uh you know uh, raises a lot of questions <laughs> and not not the least of which is you know how democratic are these states, including the United States that uh, provoke these wars um but all of that seems to me to be <clears throat> not irrelevant because i do think that certain people were convinced by those arguments and it's important to try to think about why that's the case but no i mean the 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 <clears throat> when when you know politicians who are running these large powerful states are engaging in these wars of choice, I don't think that they have chosen them on behalf of the citizens of the states that are being assaulted. I mean, I think that there is very little reason to, to, to credit those arguments.
1: But we always hear before these military altercations, we always hear the president saying, President George W. Bush, for instance, saying, this is not a war on the Iraqi people. This is a war to uh, against Saddam Hussein, and if in the next 48 hours, if you depose him, we can stop this war. So it's always framed in a way, this isn't a war on Islam, this is not a war mm-hmm. on the people of Iraq, this is a war on the government. How much do you think that, it, the people who are being attacked, how much do you think that actually convinces them, and does that work in convincing the domestic population here in the United States, giving
0: more credibility or legitimacy to that war? Well... I uh, you know that it, it I, I can't speak on behalf of <laughs> the people of Iraq, for example. I think that we can off I think that we can all feel pretty pretty sure that they uh, they did not for the most part feel that way. There's a you know, the obvious <laughs> the decade of continuing conflict after the initial invasion does seem to suggest that. The americans were not exactly greeted as liberators as uh, was suggested um <clears throat> i'm not sure that the on the domestic scene it matters a great deal i think that these are platitudes that sort of have to be announced um but yes it is part of a a sort of a complex of self-justifying kind of rhetoric um i think that you know uh uh, americans and americans are not unique in this respect don't have a great deal of interest in the you know lives and experience of most people overseas there are exceptions for example uh you know I, i wrote about in this piece and we can talk a little bit more about the sort of interesting u.s relationship with israel on that front um but no, you know, I don't I I think that I think that people need to feel that they are justified in their actions. And a really important role that politicians have is in providing the public with those justifications. Um that is a you know a major part of how politicians build political support. And so, you know, again, if we look at Ukraine, really, mainly because it's just such an important event of our current moment. The <clears throat> a, 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 a huge portion of the discourse surrounding it is about developing justifications for the attack that you know Russia has instigated. And for example, you know, we hear a lot about um, the question of whether the war there currently is a proxy war. And that's a that is an interesting sort of question that um uh produces a lot of 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 hand wringing. Um and it's it is worth thinking about because not because I think it, it it is actually a very coherent question, but um because in even in even asking it a certain kind of work is being done, right? Because the question of whether the war in Ukraine is a proxy war between Russia and the United States or Russia and this imagined entity of the West is, it really, it really redounds to the question of whether the defense of Ukraine is justified. So that's why, you know, I suggest that when, when, when politicians bring up these, um, these arguments, what they're really trying to do is to seed the public imagination and provoke a sense of moral justification so that, you know, the public stays on side. Um, and various uh, arguments were similarly you know, made with respect to the war in Iraq. Again, there was that you know democratic peace idea. And all of this is intended to suggest that the invader is justified in invading, whereas, and thereby to sort of get over the, that's just, you know, very basic understanding that I think most people have that violence is not really justified except in the context of self-defense. But then of course, we get back to this interesting question of what is defense and what is security. Uh, Security is the thing to be defended and so the aggressor is constantly enjoying to develop justifications for how their aggression is in fact a form of defense.
1: Well, that's really, really interesting. We are speaking with writer and editor Simon Waxman who posted the Baffler article, Worst Laid Plans, Foreign Policy is Politics. Find out more about Simon at simonwaxman.com. That's really interesting, the idea that just asking the question of if this is a proxy war can lead to the framing of legitimizing that war. When it comes to this fictional, bright line between politics and national security, That so many people in the National Security Council, former National Security Council members like the author of this book, Grand Illusion, Stephen Simon, as well as Fiona Hill, the the bright line that they want to believe in. You write that in this view, where politics is the stuff of ideologies and sentimental attachments, national security is the stuff of material interests, safety from foreign (coughs) threats and beneficial relations of trade. Interests, moreover, are pursued by means of strategy. Strategy does not always work. Some strategists are lousy, some are ill-informed, and even the best-laid plans falter before a freak sandstorm crossing the deserts of Arabia. But whatever the content of strategy, its form is rational. So in this view, national security is seen as a rational actor outside of politics. Is the military during wartime or in any, uh, any kind of armed confrontation, by extension, seen it as on the other side of the bright line separating it from politics and being rational that is until it is quote unquote politicized because this reminds me of when you know commentators or politicians claim a war has become politicized as if the whole process leading up to the war mm-hmm. was free mm-hmm. of politics so our foreign policy the military and uh, war outside of politics and so none of those can be corrupted by politics. Is that the way that the national security state kind of views things? These things are outside of politics, and once politics are infused, they become corrupted
0: yeah, i th- I, I do think that that is is kind of a a basic commitment of, you know, national security thought. and and we need to we need to think about it in those terms that, that national security, is is a is a kind of uh episteme if that's not too academic a term i mean it's a it's a way of thinking about the world it's not it's not a self-evident fact in the world we create um you know these these ideas of what of what security means and those ideas are inherently and deeply political we have to think about what it is that we want to protect what can do harm to that and and who can do harm to that and and those those are always ultimately you know deeply political questions i think it's 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 interesting that it's kind of a a cliche in um international relations theory to go back to the 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 sort of german theorist of war karl von clausewitz who said you know that that war is politics by other means and yet at the same time uh, people who are involved in foreign policy decision making don't seem to think about it that way i think they get tend to get caught up in in the, in a sort of strategic gaming as opposed to um you know realizing that that they as 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 you know, their role is to <clears throat> is to to kind of observe what's going on in the world and make some kind of uh, informed suggestion as to what should be done. And yet the decisions are, of course, made by politicians. and the and and in addition, the recommendations of foreign policy advisors, you know, in involve all kinds of presumptions about what a good outcome might be and those are are always you know based in political commitments um but because we have this sense that oh it's it's just a a, a material security outcome and and that is the, the sort of nature of security is self-evident that the goals of foreign policy are are essentially apolitical, but that's, I mean, that's wrong because the the nature of security is so highly contestable and what exactly it is that we're trying to secure is going to, you know, that question is going to be answered very differently by different people. And then at the same time, the you know when you when you sort of start to do a little bit of a, a genealogy of these conditions of security contestation you find that there's a lot of uh underlying sort of ideological interests sentimental interests humanitarian interests you know again if we look at the at the at the cold war um the 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 sort of the u.s perspective say on uh Vietnam that ultimately resulted in the US going to war with Vietnam was heavily based in ideas about or 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 in observations really about you know humanitarian disasters that had occurred you know under communist rule in eastern europe decades earlier um it, there was also a great deal of fellow feeling between the United States and the new sort of post-war, post-war World War II French Republic. The, you know, in the late 1950s, the French, and of course the French were the colonial masters in Vietnam, you know, sent to the United States a, a sort of envoy to convince the U.S. Congress that preventing the fall of vietnam to communism was an important american interest and it's not by accident that they sent one of the most esteemed generals of the free french in world war ii who was a great friend of the u.s ambassador and you know these these people were aiming to persuade on the grounds of political values the so the the sort of creation of of a U.S. interest in Vietnam had no basis whatsoever in, you know, any kind of obvious physical security concern. It it was an interest, it was a political interest that, you know, like all political interests is, is manufactured through processes of persuasion.
1: You write that in Grand Illusion, Stephen Simon seeks the strategy that went missing while agents of U.S. national security, heedless, stupid, corrupted by politics, pursued a posture of imperial overreach in the Middle East. The race to dominate in this telling begins with the Reagan administration's 1982 incursion in Lebanon, careens into the 1990-91 Gulf War in which uh, U.S.-led forces drove the Iraqi army out of Kuwait's oil fields, and muddles through the war's 2003 successor and the subsequent occupation of Iraq before sputtering out with the 2011 Libya misadventure after which U.S. militancy in the regions began to wane, Afghanistan mysteriously is nigh absent. So in the words of uh, Madeleine Albright, it, it was all worth it. We will never be able to know, of course, but is all criticism of U.S. policy in the Middle East uh, closed for debate? in this uh, perspective, because Saudi Arabia and Israel or the region did not fall into a region wide war. It is everything that the United States did Mm. when it comes to foreign policy, perfectly fine in this perspective, because the U.S. or because Israel and Saudi Arabia never went to war.
0: Well, you know, I mean, that's one of the really strange things about this book. Um, In some ways, I'm glad that we haven't been talking too much about the book itself, because it is just such a a bizarre and self-refuting contradictory exercise. Um, and you know, I don't want to necessarily presume that the perspective of this author accurately characterizes perspective of everyone in the National Security Council, but I think that it is safe to say that um there are there's a, a pretty serious groupthink that goes on in Washington foreign policy circles and if you're not participating in that groupthink, you don't really have much of a career there um so you know I think that we should really scratch our heads uh at because I you know I think ultimately that is what this this author concludes that because you know the U.S. has been able to maintain uh, access to oil, and because the US has been able to maintain what you know this author considers to be two important allies worth protecting, uh, namely Saudi Arabia and and Israel, you know, that <clears throat> despite all the all the waste and the wasted human life, um, as a result of these sort of foreign policy adventures, you know I guess it kind of all worked and it's very hard to understand because um the sort of the sort of thesis of this book is that the U.S. perpetrated imperial wars in the Middle East which you know to me means that the U.S. was trying to rule these territories um that doesn't really seem to be a defensible claim at all and ultimately you know the author decides well actually it was really just kind of a kind of a, a, a you know it was it was it was ultimately real politique maybe it was not pursued in the most efficient or sensible way but but the goals were really pretty minimal and easy to understand within the frameworks of you know structure of international relations and you know I constantly find in reading the works of um and uh, whether it's you know so, so, and and observations of people who are engaged in foreign policy decision making and national security decision making that they're constantly coming back to these, ideas of international structure that, you know, international relations theorists talk about, and, you know, that you sort of build ally alliances this way and that way, and you balance this way and that way. And again, you know, this just comes back to these really not very credible notions that there is some, you know, rational strategy to be pursued that is just divorced from the political realities of any given moment, you know, that all those political realities are just kind of epiphenomenal and you just have to understand the structure and then it's obvious. Um, You know, I mean, that is, that is a weird, you know, overly intellectualized and, and kind of like chess match approach to real life that to me doesn't seem to have much to do at all with the way that, Politics actually works uh, the way that and the way that, you know, the the public is engaged in foreign policy and is the subject of foreign policy.
1: You quote, as for the first Gulf, are you right? Sorry. as for the first Gulf War, after initially diagnosing imperialism, Stephen Simon decides that, in fact, the motivation was real politic, as you were just saying. You then quote him writing, There was no question that U.S. interests were threatened by a hostile power acquiring a very large share of regional oil production. You add that U.S. policy has been the cause of extravagant suffering in the Middle East. And not only there is undeniable, but the claim that the United States has tried to rule the Middle East is hard to defend, and Simon never really tries. Is he arguing, this is just how capitalism works. If you want the economy we have, then we will need resources which leads to extravagant suffering, a kind of... Washing of their hands of accountability or responsibility—that it's not their fault; it's our fault as consumers in putting these demands on our economy.
0: Um, so you're suggesting that the that the uh, because the population in the United States, for example, and in other rich states, is so demanding of consumption. Yeah, I mean, I think I think definitely that that is a. Uh, you know that is a a a very large part of what governs um of what governs foreign policy decision making and 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 I think that that's an important thing to say because I don't mean to suggest with all this talk of ideology and sentiment that the material factors are irrelevant I think that you know in the sense to the to the degree that you know Empire was all about creating um prosperity in the metropole uh in in that sense the activity of U.S. foreign policy has very often been imperial but um I think that we can I think that we can uh you know hopefully understand that there is a kind of uh reinforcement dynamic between the the pursuit of material wealth um you know and whether that's oil or some other you know extractive uh good these days now we're focusing a lot on obtaining lithium so that we can power electric cars or you know whatever um that the uh, that that is that that exists in in a relationship with the creation of political justifications for engaging in you know aggressive foreign policy aimed at for example securing access to oil and yes i mean this author is not um is not really is not pretending otherwise and i think you know most people involved in in national security and foreign policy decision making also uh would not pretend otherwise and would say that, yes, it is essential to maintain access to these goods. And uh, they will then, you know, manufacture reasons for why aggression is justified in order to maintain that access. And some of those reasons include you know humanitarian appeals and other moral appeals uh you know we hear a lot about how the united or we used to hear a lot about how the united states needed to maintain an aggressive posture in parts of the middle east in order to protect women there um which does not seem like a very credible claim given that these same politicians are generally not very interested in protecting women domestically um, and uh, that you know And, you know, in any case, in various other sorts of sentimental appeals that, you know, justify the situation. And I I don't think that 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 is all just gaslighting and that these people feel, you know, are just trying to come up with any old reason to justify aggression that really ultimately is only for the purpose of material benefit. I think that all of these purposes are, you know, can, can be sincerely felt. Right, that people can sincerely feel a sentimental and ideological reason, while at the same time appreciating that it's good for them. They feel to have access to this oil, um, and you know, in the case of U.S. relations with Israel, I think we have like a really clear example of a case where those that relationship is not materially beneficial, and yet it is deeply felt. Right. It's the the ideological and sentimental reasons underlying it are deep and very real for tens of millions of people.
1: In this view of the first Gulf War inevitability um, and inevitably, sorry, causing the second uh, Gulf War, you explained that the uh, September 11 attacks merely provided the pretext for a war that was bound to happen as the second Bush White House forged in both senses of the word links in the public's mind between Saddam and Osama bin Laden while claiming the mantle of UN authority. And you add that, except that as Simon himself notes, the second invasion of Iraq was far from inevitable. He says it was inevitable, and then he claims that it was far from inevitable. The key underlying factor was a purely contingent one, the divine intervention of the Supreme Court on behalf of Bush, who, according to the voters, had lost the 2000 election you then quote uh, simon writing the role of accident is truly striking there is no one who believes that gore would have responded to 9-11 by invading iraq you add hardly a page goes by without contradictions like these at the absolute least it is hard to place such trust in such small we say limber (laughs) thinking so simon claims the second gulf war was inevitable And simultaneously, the Second Gulf War was completely avoidable if George W. Bush was not president when 9 11 happened and the Supreme Court had not ruled in favor of Bush in Bush v. Gore earlier that year, or a year earlier. While there's a clear contradiction in these statements, how accurate is either statement? How inevitable was the war? And how certain are we that a Gore administration would not also have engaged in some military retribution? Because this seems all to be based on hypotheticals and fantasy
0: yeah i mean so i think that I, I i maybe this is just i i think i choose to just sort of see these contradictions as reflecting the the you know and an author trying to come to terms co- with the many sort of bad ideas that he has held over the course of a consequential career um and sort of you know, never having really come to a, a, a genuine understanding of them. Um, I think, so, I, so absolutely, this the second Gulf War was not inevitable. Um, it was a manufactured crisis. Um, that's obvious in hindsight, and it was indeed obvious with foresight. I mean, it was obvious at the time. <clears throat> and the panoply of justifications that arose around it I think also testified to that right there you know there was all the all sorts of there was you know talk about weapons of mass destruction but there were also all at the same time and not unimportantly these claims being made about how democracies don't go to war about how the Iraqi people yearn for freedom and are oppressed under the regime of Saddam Hussein. And, you know, un- undoubtedly that was in, in you know, in many ways an extraordinarily destructive dictatorship. And I don't want to minimize that, but that doesn't really speak to the question of why the United States should have invaded. No, I mean, it was, it was, it was a, uh, <laughs> it was the, you know, the U.S. politicians taking advantage of um, the the sort of international legal regime under the UN and the weapons inspection regime uh, basically just looked at that and said, okay, we're going to vindicate that regime and that will provide us legal cover to the extent that, you know, international law actually constrains anyone, which I would argue that it, it really doesn't. Um, but <clears throat> you know the, yeah there's the, a, 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 a definitely a a, a a confected conflict you know as far as whether al gore would have uh invaded I- iraq you know in response to nine eleven, it's it's hard to see that it's hard to see that happening he might have made certain other terrible choices It's hard to envision that he would have made that particular terrible choice. I think um, when we think about the psychology of the leaders involved, it seems quite relevant that George W. Bush was the son of the president who had prosecuted the previous U.S. war in Iraq, and that many people, including this author Stephen Simon, um, later criticized the first Bush administration for not decapitating the regime in Iraq the first time, and uh, of course, Bush George W. Bush himself was surrounded by people who who probably felt that critique in a pretty stinging way because they were the same people who were operating foreign policy in the first Bush administration.
1: So you write the worse than the lot logical inconsistencies. However, is the logic that holds as Stephen Simon runs through his chronology of greatest military flops, he keeps hinting at the their strategic choice that eluded decision-makers ailing from bouts of politics. Uh, is his belief that it was not the military's fault, but politics and the two are very different from one another, even in conflict with one another? Because I'm just curious, if this is a support for national security to be run by... <laughs> The Pentagon by the military. A couple weeks ago, we spoke with uh, Catherine Jan Ebright, who serves as counsel with the Brennan Center's Liberty and National Security Program, where she focuses on war powers and the constitutional separation of powers. We talked with Catherine about her study, Secret War, how the U.S. uses partnerships and proxy forces to wage war under the radar. In that study, she finds that when it comes to the U.S. military and where it is currently engaged in fighting and has been engaged since the 2001 passing of the authorization for use of military force. Members of Congress, as well as the president, have not known everywhere the U.S. military is engaged and who they have engaged in combat. But the Pentagon and CIA both know. And while past presidents like President Obama attempted to get that information with the assumption it would then be made public, he never fully succeeded. So does an NSA veteran like Simon, from your reading of his book, uh, Grand Illusion, does he want, do you think the national security apparatus wants a national security policy not run by politicians, but affected by the Pentagon and CIA rather than one that has to deal with bouts of politics from elected representatives in the legislative and executive branch. Do you get a feeling that he would rather have a foreign policy, a national security policy run by the Pentagon and CIA than run by the uh, legislative and executive branches?
0: you know I think my sense is that he would he would rather have a foreign policy run by the National Security Council and the State Department taking certainly with um you know the advice and uh intelligence collection provided by the uh you know defense intelligence agencies and the CIA I don't get the impression that <clears throat> he sees the uh the Pentagon as the appropriate locus of decision making, but you get a very clear sense that he does not you know see much role for a democratic process in foreign policy i you know i think it's I think it's worth noting that this book is structured entirely around which administration is in power at any given time. And that, that has multi- multiple effects. I mean, one of them is to, is to provide a completely US-centric perspective on things in which the United States is always the agent and is never reacting to facts on the ground anywhere else in the world or to the influences of decisions made elsewhere. But in addition, it completely divorces Congress from the process of foreign policy. Uh, And, you know, in some ways, I I think that there's a, a, a little bit of a truth to that, to some extent. I mean, as you were just pointing out, that Congress is often kept in the dark about goings on in U.S. foreign policy. And I would say that uh, for many of those politicians, they prefer it that way. I, I think that, you know, so much of the activity of Congress is passing the buck. It's, it's not having to take the hard vote. It is putting yourself in a position to essentially be a, you know, a media star, get out there on TV, on the radio, get in the, pap- get in the papers, jabbering away. And, You know holding some some very bold opinion but then never having to take a vote um and uh i think you know i think that a lot of the politicians that we have in this country um i think that they prefer to operate that way i think that they like the idea that um not just foreign policy but that so many policies would be made without their input and you know thus for example Congress is uh, very much willing to rely on the Supreme Court to make policy decisions and the, you know, and the uh, presidential administration and basically just serves to kibitz and write op-eds. That's uh, maybe a cynical perspective, but I think one that is, uh, you know, earned. (laughs)
1: Well, do you think that that lack of transparency has an overarching effect on U.S. De- on democracy here in the United States? Does, the, does Congress or Pentagon or the CIA or the president keeping secrets about war from the American people, uh, not having that transparency, do you think that has an impact on uh, democracy writ large here in the United States?
0: Absolutely it does. I think that the extravagant... Um, You know seek uh, a sort of secrecy state that we have which is part of the national security complex is hugely detrimental to the possibility of i would say democratization not democracy because i don't recognize the united states as being a democracy i think that we have you know many people in this country who seek democracy, and that is a great thing and something to be, uh, <laughs> you know, pursued <clears throat> uh, in an ongoing way. Um, but I think that that the process of democratization is very much hampered by secrecy. Um, and I think one of the really interesting things about the recent, you know, discord leaks, so-called it's just how benign uh most of 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 what we're learning is right so much of of what we've heard is not really anything that needs to be kept secret um you know there have been important studies of the uh, tendency to um, keep just so much confidential information in the United States, and it's clear that it's it's it can't be controlled. Uh, even people who do not intentionally keep sake, state secrets in their Florida mansions uh, <laughs> have been discovered to you know have them in their Philadelphia offices, and uh, it, it's it's impossible to control all of it. There are low level you know, National Guardsmen, apparently, who have access to state secrets. Um, And I think, you know, all of that just reflects the fact that we don't have a self-governing polity here, right? How are you supposed to have a system of self-government in which the selves, that is the citizenry, the population, in which the population doesn't know what in a very basic and fundamental way, the government is, right? What the state is doing with its power. I I mean, I think I don't want to, I don't want to go totally overboard and suggest that there is never any sort of instrumental utility or justification for keeping a secret. But I think that uh, we need to, in so many ways, we need to be thinking about how the state, is not actually subject to the government of the population, um, and state secrecy is definitely, uh, definitely part, definitely a part of that lack of democracy or those severe democratic deficits that that we experience in this country.
1: But you do also point out the influence that the public does have over. Uh, policy at times. You mentioned how in the mid-60s Americans had grown a soft spot for Israel in the preceding decade or so, not because Israel contributed to domestic security or prosperity, but for sentimental reasons. In the 1960s, Americans discovered the Holocaust through the trial of Adolf Eichmann in books like While Six Million Died, which highlighted Americans' moral debts to the world's Jews incurred while Passively observing Nazi genocide That's the 1967 book While Six Million Died A Chronicle of American Apathy By Arthur D. Morse The first book about the U.S. response to the Holocaust And you add that The Second Vatican Council in 1962 to 1965 gave Catholics dispensation to stop hating Jews. Aggressively, uh, public Israeli policy led by then-foreign minister Golda Meir, uh, who had grown up in the United States and spoke American, positioned support for Israel as a so-called American value, and with East Jerusalem in Jewish hands after the 1967 war... American Protestants saw the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, which provided a religious rationale for investing in the new status quo. By 1979, Israel was prepared to acknowledge the effective advocacy of U.S. Christians by rewarding Jerry Falwell with a private jet and the following year a medal for outstanding achievement. So, Simon, what is the relationship, if any, between the growing influence of Christianity in U.S. politics and the seemingly simultaneous growth of popular support for Israel? What is the link between the huge growth in Christian influence in U.S. politics, popular U.S. support for Israel happening at seemingly exactly the same time? Does U.S. nationalism and Israeli nationalism
0: thrive off of one another, and why? Um <clears throat> Well, i would say absolutely they do and they predate that um that that sort of uh thriving predates the 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 growth of um a sort of uh pro-israel evangelical movement um you know in the in the 60s and 70s um just to quickly get back to one one other point the i think that the need for democracy speaks to the need for a democratic structure and process but that's not to say that the population has no influence on politicians and on policy i mean there's a there's a reverberation there absolutely i think that you know with the the growth of the sort of american christian right um that has that has definitely been a a real a really important and in some ways you know a recognized but 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 under theorized element of um the u.s relationship with israel um because you know historically i don't think anybody would argue that the united states was especially um welcoming of or celebratory of Jews and Jewish interests, um, you know, when the Roosevelt administration during the uh, during World War II sort of created the idea of Judeo Christianity, uh, it did so in order to try to convince Americans that they should care that Jews were being slaughtered in Europe, and it was not a very successful effort. <laughs> um but you know things definitely changed in the in the 60s and 70s in terms of the way that americans perceived uh jews in israel at least um and also there were significant changes at the time going on in the way that americans understood their relationship with arabs and muslims uh and you know these <clears throat> these developments have everything to do with why israel became such an important factor in u.s politics and then you <clears throat> you start to get feedback loops as um as more as, as as a you know sort of enough americans come to understand uh the the sort of success of a of a, a jewish state in Israel as being important to themselves it become that becomes a voting issue and uh you know within the very cabined and constrained you know forms of democracy that we have it it became essentially a necessity for U.S politicians to um you know to to affect this You know, pro-Israel so-called posture, Um, and I think it's it's also underappreciated that while you had the the Christian right becoming more and more invested in Jewish Israel for theological reasons, you also had you know substantial parts of the population that were opposed to that. But those parts of the population, or that were that were that favored a creation of a Palestinian state as a kind of anti-colonial project um, and as a a justice-seeking project but those groups that favored that were the most reviled groups in the United States I mean they were uh black nationalists they were anti-war protesters they were uh members of the American Indian movement I think at this point most americans don't know very much about that or think about it a great deal but in the 1970s the american indian movement was a much more headline grabbing um you know element of our domestic politics and you know if the black panthers and the american indian movement and campus so-called radicals were in favor of creating a palestinian state and not necessarily meaning that there would be no israel but if they were in favor of creating a Palestinian state, that really told a lot of you know, that told the the balance of the population where they needed to stand and it was with Israel.
1: We have been speaking with writer and editor Simon Waxman, who posted the Baffler article, Worst Laid Plans, Foreign Policy is Politics. You can find out more about Simon as well as a lot of his writing at simonwaxman.com. One last question for you, Simon. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question for every one of our guests is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. If (laughs) recognition of U.S. apathy during the Holocaust, led to popular public support for Israel. Do you think we'll have the same kind of reckoning when it comes to our apparent apathy towards the Palestinians and the conditions that they have lived in uh, under during occupation? Do you think that we're going to have the exact same reckoning happening again? Are we going to be repeating ourselves when it comes to having a reckoning with our apathy towards others?
0: Um, Well, that is that is hard to envision. And I think that it has so much to do with what we see as being, you know, justified forms of self-defense as opposed to what we see as being aggression. And this all comes back to the point raised earlier that security isn't just some natural thing in the universe that is self-evident. Um, it is a matter of what we understand to be worth protecting and what we understand to be sources of harm I think that it it in the case of the Palestinians I think it's very clear that so many Americans see the suffering that Palestinians have experienced at the hands of the Israeli state as being justified because Israel's self-defense is justified and it is understood to be activity that was, you know, that, that, that sort of oppress it, uh, that the oppression of this people is, is not oppression. It is self-defense and it is justified. And therefore it is morally permissible and no reckoning is required.
1: Well, on that happy note, Simon, (laughs) it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for listening to the show. I appreciate that greatly. Writer and editor Simon Waxman posted the Baffler article, Worst Laid Plans, Foreign Policy is Politics. Find out more about Simon at SimonWaxman.com. Thank you so much for being on our show, and I'm going to bug you in the future to have you back on.
0: Uh, It would be be my pleasure to uh, be on again. I, I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, Simon. Take care.
0: Thank you. You
1: are listening to God's favorite radio show, Prove Me Wrong, This Is Hell. Producer Dan Kugler is going to have some responses that you have sent via Facebook for the question from hell in just a couple of minutes. If what you just heard from Simon on U.S. foreign and national security policy being far from the practical, rational policy policymakers think it is, Show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Patreon podcast with streams live on Thursdays at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com/slash this is hell. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and clicking on support. Remember, we are completely listener-supported. We are not a not-for-profit. We don't make enough profits to be a not-for-profit, and we do not take any type of grant or advertiser money. So please show your support for ThisIsHell.com by clicking on support. Dan, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell, and tell us how our listeners are responding on Facebook so far.
2: Okay. The question from hell is, what's... A disaster that would make you happier than Elon Musk's rocket exploding. Yes,
1: I'm looking forward to the explosion of rocket theories and alternatives.
2: Um, uh, We've got um, uh, Carlos C. I like this one. Chuck filling in Tucker Carlson's p- spot? Yes, I
1: will Yeah, it would be great. <laughs> I would definitely take calls all day. Yeah. That would be the entire show. I want calls. I want calls. I want calls. <laughs> What's next?
2: Um we've got Aaron Darksky for Tesla to shrink to nothingness as GM, Ford, Toyota, Kia and VW come to full strength. As EV producers, remember Studebakers.
1: <laughs> All right. I will remember Studebakers. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Any more?
2: Uh, Carly uh, B., a disaster that takes Fox News off air permanently everywhere. This is apparently without you hosting.
1: Okay. All right. I guess. And uh, Carly B., who knew that she'd be chiming chiming in.
2: Uh, She's chiming in twice. Um, BRICS imploding the U.S. economy, turning into a third world country, ending its colonization of the global south.
1: That's the BRICS bank, correct? B-R-I-C-S? Yes. yes, Awesome.
2: And Scott P bovine diarrhea epidemic at the RNC. <laughs> oh, God,
1: Lord. That's an awful explosion to think about. <laughs> Let's just leave it there for now. We'll pick okay. them up for a rest tomorrow. Uh, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. You can check out all of our merch right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter, at thisishellradio, or You can email it to us at at chuckatthisishell.com. But again, we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Dorchin in The Moment of Truth. And one more time, Dan, what is Jeff talking about during this week's Moment of Truth?
2: Jeff will be talking up the half-ass ethos.
1: The half-assed ethos. We'll have the rest of your answers to the question from hell later this week. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory this week in Rotten History. On April 29th, 1965, 58 years ago this week, President Lyndon Johnson ordered U.S. troops into the Dominican Republic where forces loyal to Juan Emilio Bosch, the first democratically elected president in the republic's history, were fighting the right-wing generals who had ousted him two years earlier in a coup Makes sense, after all, I'm absolutely certain, 100% convinced that LBJ called in the troops to protect the will of the people to protect democracy in the Dominican Republic and the government that was democratically elected. I'm positive that's what he was doing certain he was there to fight for democracy and against the illegal coup. Johnson claimed that the U.S. military invention was necessary to protect the lives of U.S. citizens of the Dominican Republic, but his real reason for sending in the Army and the Marines was to prevent supporters of Bosch, who identified themselves by the term constitutionalists, from restoring him to the presidency because the last thing the U.S. needs, 250 miles west of Puerto Rico and 500 miles northwest of Cuba is a democratically elected government that is based on a nation's constitution. For years before this election, Bosch had worked in exile to oppose the corrupt dictatorship of Rafael Trujillo, who had been responsible for tens of thousands of political murders. And during his seven short months as president, Bosch had pursued land reforms, new labor laws, and other changes that made him enemies among the rich and caused Catholic church figures and others to call him a communist. And by the way, just as a callback to a conversation that we had last week with Malcolm Harris about his book Palo Alto, he mentions how... The way in which uh, the corrupt dictatorship of Rafael Trujillo had access to the names of tens of thousands of political murders was through Silicon Valley before it was Silicon Valley and Stanford University. After the generals grabbed power, of course, and Bosch fled to Puerto Rico, LBJ did not want him back in the Dominican Republic, invoking the specter of, quote, another Cuba, by which I assume he meant another nation cut off from the rest of the world by a global superpowers blockade and permanent economic sanctions regime. In the violent weeks that followed, a combined total of some 1,500 Dominican troops and police were killed on both sides, along with 44 U.S. troops and an unknown number of civilians. In the following year, a ceasefire brokered by representatives of the Organization of American States would eventually lead to new elections, in which a conservative candidate, Joaquin Balaguer, would defeat Bosch with the help of, you guessed it, the US government, so if you actually believe the foreign policy of the United States was about bringing around, you know, democracy, freedom and liberty, here's yet another historic example of how that's simply not the case. It's really a long-running global war on anything even related to the left. Now that's rotten history, and apparently our present state and our future moving forward as well, which is a big reason why This is Hell. Dan, who is our next guest here on This is Hell.
2: We're going to be having Quinn Slobodian, the author of Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Quinn is the award-winning author of Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, which has been translated into six, count them, six languages. <laughs> he is a professor of history of ideas at Wellesley College. He lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: I got to take that. He lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts off there, unless people want to start stalking. <laughs> I'm really not too sure why I have that in there. And of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap radio show, live streaming and podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Dan Kugler for producing. This is not democracy now, or ever. This is hell.
2: Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. Uh, and my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride.
0: Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell,
2: and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.